0: I'm Angela Kelly Robeck, host of the Empowered Principal Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com.
1: Hey, welcome back. Steve here, and today I'm talking with Rick Warmly. He is an author, presenter, trainer, and teacher. He is inspiring. His energy will recharge your batteries, I guarantee it. Today we're talking about assessment, redos and retakes, the power of summarization, why you should use metaphors and analogies with the kids, grading practices, and so much more. Lots to learn. Thanks for listening, and uh, oh, by the way, do you know someone who... uh, maybe doesn't listen yet to teaching learning leading K12 that you could share it with yeah and then encourage them to subscribe hmm? you know like a neighbor a cousin a you know a, a good close colleague a family member anybody hmm <laughs> hey it'd be awesome if you shared it with them just find one person and share teaching learning leading K12 with them thanks thanks for being here enjoy <music> One of the first nationally board-certified teachers in America, Rick Warmly brings innovation, energy, validity, and high standards to both his presentations and his instructional practice, which include 39 years teaching math, science, English, physical education, health, and history, as well as coaching teachers and principals. Rick's work has been reported in numerous media, including ABC's Good Morning America… Hardball with Chris Matthews, National Geographic, and Good Housekeeping Magazines, What Matters Most, Teaching for the 21st Century, and The Washington Post. He is a columnist for AMLE Magazine and a frequent contributor to ASCD's Education Leadership Magazine. He is the author of the award winning book, Meet Me in the Middle, as well as the best selling books, Day One and Beyond, Fair Isn't Always Equal, Assessment and Grading in a Differentiated Classroom, Differentiation from Planning to Practice, and Metaphors and Analogies, Power Tools for Teaching Any Subject, all five from Stenhouse Publishers, as well as some. Summarization in any subject, six innovative and tech-infused strategies for deeper student learning, and the collected writings so far of Rick Warmly, Crazy Good Stuff I Learned from Teaching Along the Way, both published by SCD. With his substantive presentations, sense of humor, and unconventional approaches, he has been asked to present to teachers and administrators in all 50 states, Canada, China, Europe, Thailand, Japan, Vietnam, Korea, Australia, the Middle East, and the White House. He is a seasoned veteran of many international webcasts, and he is Disney's American Teacher Awards 1996 Outstanding English Teacher of the Nation. He won the 2008 James P. Garvin Award from the New England League of Middle Schools for teaching excellence, service, and leadership, and he has been a consultant for National Public Radio, USA Today, Court TV, and the Smithsonian Institution's Natural Natural Partners Program and their search for the giant squid. Rick lives in Herndon, Virginia, with his wife, Kelly, and both are proud of recently launching the last of their children into adulthood with the kids college years now behind them rick and kelly are now eagerly spending their children's inheritance <laughs> it's hard to read that part with a straight face well while, while rick works on his uh, first young adult fiction novel and a new book on changing the culture of a school for ethical grading pr- practices uh, rick thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone hey steve and everyone it's an honor to be here and uh yeah some really cool stuff that giant squid stuff you know that's that's pretty cool and By the way, you also at the same time on Court TV, so (laughs) (laughs) Court TV, how'd that come up?
0: Well, there's a slight ADHD or something to my my whole career path where it's uh, one thing after another. No, I've been very blessed, very lucky uh, to be afforded so many opportunities. And I live and work in the Washington, D.C. area, and I happen to have as one of my mentors, one of the, the marine zoologists who studied the giant squid hence the, the connection to that ever since high school. He's mentored me uh, for years and decades, and I started writing curriculum for them. But also Court TV had its headquarters here and was doing a lot with anti-violence work, particularly in middle schools. And at the time, I was a middle school columnist and known for some of my middle school books. And so they invited me to be a part of that and advise them. And it ended up, I sat next to um, Al Roker, Uh, and on a panel and we talked about how do you get kids to one be create empathy for others and then how do you help them work through the violence in their lives in my particular community we had a lot of affiliates of the Crips and the Bloods and MS-13 Mara Salvatrucha violent gangs and I was a part of our county's gang uh, uh, task force in terms of educating teachers about that and what specifically teachers and parents can do to prevent their children from joining gangs and then once they're, if, if they do become a member of the gang, what, how to recognize signs of that and then how to help them leave that gang affiliation as fast as it possibly can and really truly improving the community so students, young people did not feel the need to join the gang in the first place for protection, for sense of family, for belonging and all the other myriad of reasons why they would join a gang. So they just happen to coincide at the same time, but they're just different facets of the, of the same guy
1: who's intensely curious about all of it. Very cool. Very cool. That's a and that giant squid had to be fascinating. Cause I remember I pretty much for kind of remember when all that studies were going on with that. Uh, oh yeah. creature.
0: I mean, we could talk ad infinitum and so I won't bore you with everything, <laughs> but these are, are squid that if they're full, you know, feeding arms are extended out, or you know, the length of school buses or from the pitcher's mound to home plate. And they have eyeballs the size of hubcaps. Nice. They're the only creature on earth where you could see the neuron, the axon and dendrite of the neuron with the naked eye. Wow. And they're just fascinating, but they live a mile and a half to two miles below the surface of the ocean. And so usually we just find them, you know, parts of them in the stomachs of sperm whales or caught in fishermen's nets. But I will tell you, you you may have seen that it was a Ted talk on it and there was a Discovery Channel on it too. It wasn't our expeditions, but it was some right afterwards. And then some of our crew were on this expedition where they found and filmed for 27 minutes for the first time in the history of civilization, a juvenile giant squid in full color. Uh, It was a Japanese associated one, but it was shown on the Discovery Channel. I just sobbed. I mean, we, we worked for so many expeditions and it was such a beautiful thing, and finally we saw it in its natural habitat. It was just gobsmacking. So what I do is I, I talk about giant squid to schoolchildren, and I incorporate it in as a motif I wish to teach mathematics, science, English, history, whatever I can possibly do, even ethics, because there were some ethics issues that we encountered as we were trying to find and film giant squid off the southern island of New Zealand, off the Kakura Peninsula. So, it's, it's just a fascinating time. There's so much you can hook onto it, especially if a teacher is passionate and enthusiastic about the integration of it all.
1: That's awesome. It's, it's so cool. And, and just, just a side note, you never saw it like with the a giant sub in its in its uh, arms, right? It, like the <laughs> Nautilus or something. Never mind. <laughs> Ned Land, this
0: is the Nautilus. I am Captain Nemo.
1: Awesome. Oh, my gosh, man. That was it. I, I love that. You, you just did an awesome imitation of, uh, <laughs> of the cat. I love dog. that movie too, growing up. Excellent. I love that film. And then you got to experience what the real, the real squid is like. That's cool.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, the giant squid beak is actually large enough that it could swallow a human. Wow. So it's something to, to watch out for, but they're not, you know, they're, they're much more skittish and frightened of us. They, <laughs> they're not going to attack the Nautilus or, or any human really outright.
1: Excellent. Uh, uh, thanks for talking with me about that. That's that's right up my alley right there. That's cool stuff. May have been a history teacher, but uh, love the, the stories of the ocean and the creatures. Cool, cool stuff. The, uh, so, Rick, you've been teaching and coaching for thirty nine years. In those years, you taught math, science, English, physical education, health, and history, which is really cool. All these subjects. What what ages did you work with the most? And do you have a specific subject or content area that you prefer?
0: Well, most of my years have been focused on middle school and the early years of high school. I really enjoy that age. They're the front line of humanity. Uh, And really, they're starting to get apathetic in eighth grade, and then they get real humbled real fast in the first year of high school. And it's just fascinating as they interpret the world. And to see the world through their eyes is so renewing, so rejuvenating to those of us who may have grown a little bit complacent with that. And truly, I was a biology major at Virginia Tech. So, I think life science is probably my first love, followed very quickly by reading, writing, speaking, listening, viewing, you know, the five parameters of English. I would include media literacy and analyzing rhetoric and fake news in that category as of today. Uh, those two together are, are just uh, whip smart, just spot on synergy of what we're about right now in the modern era. I really enjoyed mathematics, though, because I liked the, the, in a sense, solving the logic problems of it. Uh, and, and creating a diverse approach, like are there are four ways to solve this instead of just one. That element just fascinates me. And math in the service of solving problems or contributing to the world, not just math for its own sake. So the idea that math is part of a larger theme, it's, it's a problem solving tool, but also the ways to think mathematically. And some of this led to the world of cognitive linguistics, which is a mixture of all three of those. And that's really the world of metaphors and analogies. And I wrote a whole book on that, on how you, mathematics is 90% metaphor. And one of the reasons that people don't understand the math that they might be learning is they don't really understand the analogy or metaphor the teacher is using at the time to express a very complex or abstract idea. And if you just use the right analogy because you knew me, so there is my interest in differentiated instruction coming to the forefront. If you knew me and you're responsive to what you knew about me, that could inform the analogies you use, and I would actually achieve in your class a mini epiphany, aha aha moment of clarity and go, oh, now I get it, thanks. And then when students are taught the tools for developing their own metaphors or to dismantle metaphors that are offered to them is not really completely fitting the scenario, that's teacher goal because that's critical thinking 101. And some of you are probably familiar with George Lakoff, who writes about the use of metaphors in politics. And he makes a very compelling case that in every presidential election and most of the Senate and and congressional elections, the people who won are the people who control the metaphors of the time, they gave the most resonant metaphor. Uh, Nietzsche even said that way back in the day that metaphors are particularly powerful because they force people to accept them on their own terms. And that's just mind-boggling manipulative, you know, to to some degree that, wow, I just accept that metaphor. So now I have this filter and lens through which I see everything you're about to say to me, and that shapes me. And am I aware of that? Do I have a consumer savvy with metaphor genesis and dismantling, deconstruction and construction, you know, of analogies and metaphors that I would be able to perceive that? Or am I just going to be duped and following along, unbeknownst to me, that it was the metaphor that caught my eye, that gleaming, glittery object. And now I'm following it down the path and it might be trafficking in in something that I really don't uh, adhere to very much, but the metaphor was just so appealing. So anyway, all of that kind of combines together and it becomes a very practical application in K-12 classrooms, mostly high school and middle school. I did teach kindergarten in second grade earlier in my career and I have been an adjunct and and a university professor. So I have tried the best I can to have the perspective of, of those multiple levels.
1: That's so cool. That's, and it really it would. So it serves itself to be able to know and understand that and to be able to look at it at all those different levels. Cause it's going different. It's going in a direction of building. And I, I love that. That's, that's so cool. The You know, got to ask. So you've worked with kids for a long time and especially I'm sorry, as a, at the middle school level <laughs> <You> know, it's-, <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: awesome it's our hidden jewel people like go there and go i'm just going to do this until i get a high school job and they, <laughs> turn out, and they love it and they don't realize how incredibly powerful it is and empowering and meaningful and fun and loving and why you got gotten the education in the first place so shh it's our secret don't let it get out
1: love that (laughs) because i do have to say that there there are some colleagues who would say what are you nuts (laughs) (laughs) no way
0: i think that people find the roots of who they are as teachers their true colors come out and again they connect with people on a much different level in middle school where the kids aren't quite as jaded or not quite as playing a game or used to playing a game they're their raw selves So I have nothing but excitement about teaching middle school and sadness for those who look at it askance.
1: Gotcha. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, By the way, and I I just got to tell you that uh, I, for some strange reason now, going through my head uh, is the following, Um, got a whale of a tale to tell you, lads, a whale of a tale or two.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) You need... um, Kurt Douglas, or, or Kurt, uh, Kirk Douglas, with his um ukulele or whatever he had, and yes. he was playing.
1: Yes, exactly. Sorry, that's that's it's gonna be stuck in my head now for a while. So, so uh, sorry if I start humming a few tunes of that. Um, anyway, so uh, Rick, I, I had the good fortune of hearing you present when I was a high school principal, and and you were awesome. And I I had been having a tough uh, a tough couple of days, and was not the happiest of campers when I was. I had to go to this. I hate to tell you, I was, I was made to be at the presentation. There were a bunch of things going on. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't real happy. And then you took the stage and your energy and your focus was so incredibly inspiring. I left that day ready to take on, not just my world, but the whole world. Could you talk a little about you as a trainer and presenter?
0: Holy crap, man. I am done. I am a puddle. (laughs) Thank you for saying that. I mean, can you imagine a presenter? you know, getting up there and turning somebody who's feeling really encumbered and buried and suddenly they have new life. That is like the nicest thing you could ever say. I mean, imagine a principal doing that for a teacher and a teacher doing that for a child. I'm almost every day. Oh my gosh. Thank you. I just, I'm, I'm marveling at that. Um, so you want to you describe myself as a presenter? Is that what you said? And yes, it,
1: cause it, you're it, unique.
0: It, okay. <laughs> I, I, um, it's obviously very awkward to do this, but I, I think one of the things that I do, I, I actually read about this many years later after I realized this in one of the memoirs of, of, um, of Steve Martin. And I get, a, I get associated with Steve Martin because of my white hair a lot, and I'm tall and fairly thin. And at any rate, one of his memoirs, he said that a lot of his comedy comes from poking fun at the act of doing comedy, that he he helps the audience kind of step outside of it and look at it from an outside view. And so he doesn't take himself too seriously or the whole process of of what he's doing seriously. So for example, uh, in the middle of some of my keynotes on my slides that I put up there, there'll be a small joke, kind of like a dad joke, or now I'm a new grandpa, so I'll say a grandpa joke. Just this summer, I became a grandfather the first time. So I'm gonna grandpa all over you, I'm just saying. Nice. And at any rate, and there'll be some joke in there. And then I'll turn to the audience and just say, I might be too funny for this keynote (laughs) or something, which is kind of just taking you out of the moment. I've seen uh, Steve Martin come out and it it might be others too. And the first things they said is, I'll be out in just a moment to start the show. And they're literally starting their show. (laughs) That's getting meta about it, the whole thing. Pulling the camera back, revealing behind the scenes. And a lot of my humor comes from that. But it also quickly follows with um, candor. One of the things I get I get that gets mentioned in in the evaluation forms is Rick. You say things that we want to say but we couldn't say. But you come from outside, you know, the state, so you must be an expert. You're more, <laughs> from more than fifty clicks away. But you say it and you get away with it, and then and I say yeah, and I fall emotional debris. Get you know, get a spatula. We'll scrape it up. But you say this stuff with all candor, and then about what I try to do is every six to seven minutes, I say something a little bit humorous or self-deprecating because I say strident things in between, you know, very intense things that can make you very uncomfortable. And another element of that is I love, and you'll, you'll see that in a lot of my speeches and in my writings, I love to pull the camera lens back and look at the larger picture of what we do because I think educators can get very much lost in the weeds and they, they lose sight of the functioning, the operating tenant the non-negotiable principle that they believe so fervently because they're lost in the logistics and mechanics of how to pull it off. And so they haven't cultivated, they've let it atrophy, this sense of creativity and intellect. And now they don't They don't see the larger picture and they're so mired in the muck down below, they need somebody to come by and say, hey, can I just grab your collar and pull you back from the cliff's edge, from that precipice and say, look at the vista. Now, what's more important here in the bigger scheme of things? Good. Now, let's pull to one side, let's develop 15 different ways to respond to this so you have a sense of versatility. Because if you have versatility, you're way more willing to to engage and you're not threatened by change. But if you have a very limited tool belt, so to speak, you're very threatened and you're very scared to do anything because it would affect the status quo. Oh, you're somebody who's competent and you don't wanna go back into the throes of that first year teacher winging it and and worried that somebody's gonna find out you're a fake. We all are worried that somebody's going to find out we're a fake and that we're barely a page ahead of the kids and the basal text we're following. And like, no, I knew that for many years. And you just found out about it last night, you know, as you're teaching the new lesson. There's, there's a lot of that worry uh, for teachers. How do I know that I'm te- what I'm teaching is accurate? How do I know that it's in alignment with what others teach or that it will fully prepare them for next year's course? And all those different constituencies, constituencies that run through our head at any given moment during an instructional day or during the planning time. And so I speak very honestly about that. And I come to it having taught a wide variety of subjects or coached a wide variety of teachers in the myriad of subjects. So I'm very good at pulling a science idea and a math idea and an art idea or a computer coding class of the exact same principle of tiering or scaffolding. Or uh, is our assessment really assessing what we claim it assesses so it has validity? Well, what does that look like in first grade? What does that look like in a college philosophy class? And what does it look like when you're discussing discrete math or the role of the Mentissa in a logarithm, or you know, varying parts? I think that's what I bring to the table is I'm a conduit for the latest and modern pedagogical approach, so I study the research. I apply it, and I work with teachers and coach with teachers as they apply it in the classroom. And then I help teachers and principals make all this stuff their own rather than I'm just spoon feeding you. here's what you should do, now just be quiet and do it. No, you take these ideas. And you turn it to to reflect your reality, not here's a template. I I find it very arrogant that any school would mandate a pacing guide and say, you have to follow it week five, day three, everybody's on page 66 in this subject, in this grade level. It's a slap in the face of every professional out there. It demeans everyone. It's demoralizing. So what you do is you say, yeah, here's a general plan, but here's a mechanism to part ways with it. Oh, by the way, we're going to hold you accountable for being professional about that. So you can't just do it if you're in a bad mood. You have to have an instructional, pedagogical rationale why you would deviate from this particular uh, moment that we've decided would be a legitimate thing to do. Oh, you do have a good reason because you know that kid and this This kid will respond better to page 132 than page 111. Then run, Barry, run, if you're into the flash. In other words, I'll be your loudest advocate if you're going to be the advocate for the child and reflect modern pedagogical practice. I think that mixture of humor and the idea that I'm not afraid to go there, as they say, and the the versatility, uh, you know, what I bring to the equation, like what does it look like here and here, creates hope and a sense of energy. And that's kind of what I'd hope people would take away from any presentation I did. Does that help?
1: Oh, it helps tremendously, especially understanding some of that. Because first of all, yes, I can attest to there is that, that thing, knowing that you uh, have read his memoir also is, is interesting, as well as uh, that, because uh, I know just out of the blue, you, you stuck an arrow on your head, um, in the, <laughs> <laughs> and, or through your head, whichever You're one it is.
0: Wild and crazy podcaster.
1: and you know it was sort of it 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 really makes a lot of sense and it's like uh, and and it it really speaks loudly because I can tell you that you know the school I was at had lots of issues we had uh, uh, you know uh, dealing with gangs and all kinds of such and you know so you never knew what the moment was going to bring and and uh, you know the system that day had had laid on us that uh, you know now when you come to the to our training today, we're going to split everybody up. So you're not gonna be able to sit because I was hoping to sit with a couple principals who I was going to brainstorm with about something I was dealing with. And instead, uh, they put me at a table with all these district level people. And I was like, what the heck? And now you have to be well behaved. Yes, I had to be well behaved because they're watching me. And uh, and so I was not real happy. And then you came on the stage and focused me on, uh, on what I should have been focused on, which was doing right by the kids. And it was just incredible. And I hear it right here and that's perfect. So thank you. And, and you know, one of the things, and let's use this to go into strategies for teachers. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of that in the classroom. I, you know, I, I think we'll be back in there someday. Even it looks a little different, you know, cause, yeah, cause yeah. it's happening right now. And, uh, um, could you share a little bit about how assessment should be used and its role in the teaching and learning process?
0: Well, assessment 101 is that assessment informs instructional design. And I would ask teachers to simply prove you do that. Don't just assess because that's what teachers do. They always give quizzes and tests. And I'm a good teacher, so I give quizzes and tests. So I must assess. Assess, 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 assess. assess. And we get William Tell Overture and Lone Ranger. Nice. (laughs) That's not what assessment is about. So assessment is meant to gather information to inform. So it's about forward movement in learning. It's creating operable data. And so if you're doing something that is not creating operable data, data you can use in operation and advance the student's learning, then really, would you stop calling it assessment? I mean, its root is to sit beside, a sit array. So it's a coaching tool. But the question that becomes is, when in the learning process or journey is it being used? And that fundamentally creates equity issues, ethical issues, and where your true understanding of pedagogy and instruction comes to the forefront again. And we're talking about is, you know, if I had a teacher one time say, Rick, could you hand me a formative and a summative of the same content area from your class so I can see an example of each. And so what I hand them is the exact same thing. It's one test. And I say the product itself, the format is not formative or summative. It's when you use it and how you use the data from it. It's really, the, the power of assessment is how you use what you, the information you draw from it. So if this is formative, it's in route to learning, you're coming to know, that needs to be a safe place where you can wrestle, you get lots of feedback and critique and you're allowed to revise in light of that and improve your learning and be assessed and accredited anew somewhere down the road. So that means it's low stakes, but high feedback. Oh, so now I need to see the teacher's lesson plans where are the kids being assessed? They can be assessed, you know, they can assess themselves, they can do it with classmates, the teacher can do it, somebody outside the classroom can give feedback, whatever. And then where are they being allowed to operate based on that information to improve things? I need to see both or I'll doubt the lesson's effectiveness. We can learn without grades, but we can't learn without feedback each and every time. And that's a huge, powerful part of it. It's probably for me, it's, it's probably the top three all-time most powerful things you can do. And it really sets the kids up for minimizing learned helplessness and the need for external validation. It sets them up for self-efficacy. I own my learning, and I have the tools and empowered to act upon what I know. So I don't make excuses why I didn't learn something. I say, here are the decisions I made. They resulted in this. Here are the new decisions I will make, and they will have this different result. That's incredibly powerful as opposed to I bestow from on high. This is your, the judgment upon thee. And the kid then finds every excuse in the world to preserve ego. It's very threatening. So one of the first things that we find in assessment is that judgment and evaluation shut down the instructional impact. And I want to keep that instructional impact very, very high. So I will borrow from the coaching world instructional coaching, cognitive coaching, reflective coaching, and I will say, look, I'm not gonna telegraph my opinion of what you've done. I'm not gonna give you the solution because then that's me giving you a solution and you not arriving at it yourself. My goal is to get you there, not to show you that I know the answer and you don't. Because again, that just puts you in a very defensive position and you're worried about comparison and status rather than let me do a deeper dive in critical error analysis and grow from this and then do better next time and really understand it. Uh, it's it's powerful, so I've moved away from emphasis on grades, percentages, and rubric scores, and in favor of descriptive feedback, commentary, and then the students doing the majority of the heavy lifting. Way more than I ever did before. Probably in this last half of my career so far um, than I ever did in the early '80s when I first started out, because it just became so valuable today with remote instruction and hybrid instruction where there's more and more of a responsibility in the student's shoulders for monitoring their own learning, descriptive feedback and all those techniques and principles is even more powerful and has even greater currency. So the role of assessment is, I assess 24-7. I'm, I'm an assessment junkie, informally and formally, but then I'm constantly going to be demanding of myself, and you can ask me any time to prove it, how am I using that knowledge to inform the next steps? And I might not need to change anything or I might need to change everything for a particular moment. But I don't let it sit inert and say, oh, look at me. I documented where you fell short or you met the need. And I've shared it with all the stakeholders. Come back tomorrow for more of the same rejection. It'll be fun. That's not what teachers do. So I I would say it's probably you design your assessments before you design your learning activities. And assessments are integral members of the learning activities list. Like when you take an assessment, you are literally relearning the material. It's that retrieval practice that we all understand we're getting into, that's great. So I could not design anything in my lessons without first emphasizing the assessments within and afterwards, and we've got, don't forget, common assessments, alternative assessments, pre-assessments, formative assessments, summative assessments, validity, reliability. We've got lots and lots going on, and then, how do we report that the whole grading you know uh, uh, morass that's out there so i just feel like you can't it's like our oxygen assessment literally brings vitality oxygen it, it's like breathing every day and you can't even do teaching without being well versed in it
1: awesome i and and so i I, just, I love that explanation because it is so important to what we do and as opposed to i do it because i'm expected to <laughs> Do something. Give you something that asks you questions, and I put a grade on it. I mean, so excellent. You know, on your presentation uh, presentation page, you note uh, we become competent teachers by teaching a lot. We teach, receive, you know, we we teach, receive critique, revise our efforts, and teach again. Real learning that moves to long-term memory is demanding and reiterative, and we need to extend the same opportunities to our students in all fields of learning. Instead of applying uniform, arbitrarily sequenced, and unresponsive instruction, we can build proficiency with repeated, revised, and meaningful engagement with content. Could you put this in context with the role that redos and retakes play in student learning? I love what you just
0: said, and I still agree with it wholeheartedly uh, with really, truly, my whole teacher soul. And what's interesting is I train second career teachers. So a lot of people who are in the field of mathematics, military, uh, engineering, architecture, uh, software engineers, who are there in the field for 20 or 30 years and decide they retire from that, they want to do something very meaningful, and they have this body of knowledge and a real commitment to their local communities, and a love for the subject that they want to share with others. So they wanna go into teaching. And so I get called in to teach those kinds of people from time to time. They've been in a lot of my courses and they are completely at ease because they see it's a part of the mathematical method, the scientific method. It's the way every branch of military service works in their training manuals. I've literally read them and seen this, that everybody's about reiteration. You will do this over and over and over and over again to maintain competence, And you will get you know, to critique and feedback in between from a senior member, a mentor, a colleague. There are four lawyers in my family, and all of them say that after a court case is litigated, they do a postmortem to see what they could have done better in the next time they would litigate such a case. And professional development schools for teachers do this, nursing schools, doctors do this, architectural firms do this. There's a thing called redlining in architecture and engineering. It's not the very prejudicial boundary changes in politics. That's not what I'm referring to. Redlining in the old architectural and engineering schools is where you would do your schematics, your designs, and then a colleague, a senior member of the firm, would take a red pencil and outline where you've miscalculated the torque or you know this arch won't support that beam or this is not up to code. Go back and rethink this portion that has been redlined right now. And today we'd probably do it digitally just fine and even better. But every single profession I've ever investigated, and I haven't found one that doesn't line up with this, does reiteration and critiquing in between and you get better next time, better next time, it's the way it informs everything. Yet there are teachers who went to college and then went right in the class and say, no, I must apply post-certification, adult level maturity performance in a field that people gravitate towards because they had proclivity for it on you, you morphing insecure human. I must impose that on you as the only way to prepare you for the working world or the post high school world or whatever it might be. And I'm calling Buffalo Bagels on that. That's my polite Virginia term. <laughs> nice. Uh, that's that's garbage, and that somebody's not thinking deeply. Because if they looked at themselves in their own journey, how they learned to become a teacher, they taught a lot. Like we mentioned in the in the comment you just read, how does a pilot learn to land airplanes? Uh, people always say to me, "Well, you can't re-land a plane." Yes, you can. Hundreds of times before you're allowed to have real people in the plane with you. That's how you become competent. So when teachers sit down and I ask them, what do you want your students to do? Do you want them to learn the material? Yes. And I say, do you want them to be competent? Yes, good. How do you get competent? You do it over and over and over and over and over, and you improve each time. And I begin to take a step back and look at the larger thing of what we're doing. Because what they were doing is they were doing this. Look, Rick, if you make a mistake on a $12 million contract, let's say for a computer software firm, you don't get a do-over. If you make a mistake in surgery and the patient dies, you're not going to do over. Of course you don't. I get that. You will be fired. But understand that has nothing to do with the learning process. You're demanding post-certification qualified performance in somebody pre-certification who's not even going in the field, who doesn't have any proclivity for it. And you've got kids in your class that each learn on different timelines. So the idea that they need three extra days, or they learned it three days prior and you are just miring them in mediocrity, move on, man, you're killing it. Uh, You're killing the subject for them. In other words, you're gonna hide behind a uniform timeline arbitrarily imposed by the previous generation on this new generation? No, you are hired to teach the students learn, not to play gotcha on a uniform timeline. So stop being cowardly and hiding behind the master schedule, the school calendar. Everywhere I go, I ask teachers to create a gentle insubordination with the school calendar. If they didn't learn it here, they can learn it a few days later. Submit a grade change report form if you need to. But by golly, your gradebook is cumulative for the year and maybe even the summer. And then now, with COVID-19 seclusion and the emergency teaching we did last quarter, at the, well, the last trimester, really, of last year and moving into this year, and we realized that online learning actually takes longer to get through a lot of the curriculum, what many schools are doing is they're embracing this and realizing, you know what, we're going to do e-portfolios or digital portfolios of your science for at least a year and a half to two years, maybe from mathematics portfolio, your English portfolio, your coding, your PE portfolio, whatever it is. And whatever month or year you are, you finally master this thing because we were just... One, not all of us were skilled at online delivery of instruction and that experience. So that was a learning curve for us. And two, you are going through so much diverse way, whacked out stuff in your own home. And nobody has in control of the variables we can usually control there in the classroom, at least to some degree. We're going to have extended deadlines. And we're going to let you do it over and over again if you didn't do it the first time. Because we still believe this stuff is important for you to learn as a 16-year-old, or as a 12-year-old, or whatever it is. So the idea that your whole focus is on they learn it, not I taught it, and if they didn't learn it in the same timeline, I presented it, well, sucks to be them, but we're moving on. This is not a professional educator. And this is somebody who may have misjudged the date of his or her or their retirement, and really needs to have a buddy tell them that in their face. Uh, but most teachers you know, are very conscientious, just sometimes they lose their way And I think what we can do is pull that, again, that camera lens back and say, when you impose this policy of no redos, because you think you're preparing for the larger working world, you're literally saying this, that incompetence is preparatory and maturing, that this is okay. And when did that ever become, you know, incompetence, when did it ever become okay? Oh yeah, never. Was it okay? So they needed somebody to help them walk out and see the larger view, because they were so lost in the... Mechanics and stumbling over the logistics of doing it, and what and a, and a limited perception of something that they didn't see the, the negative, the, the diminishment of students that they were perpetrating on, on their class. So, there's, there's a lot going on there. But, uh, Rick and Becky DeFour, before they passed them in separate writings, talked about the power. If you're into PLCs, that is, people recognize those names. There's the power of reiteration, redos and retakes, and every assessment grading expert in the world. And then there are cognitive scientists, and all the mind best learns, talk about the power of reiteration. Nobody debates this. It's people who don't study those things to any degree depth. They remain superficial. That tend to push back. And so we just need to help them open up their minds and walk with them a little bit on this. And I've never had anybody who... Over my dead body, will I ever allow a redo who once did that deeper dive ever want to go back to the way they originally did things. They usually want to apologize to their former students. It's a little awkward when those students are now 45 and 62 years old, but nonetheless, they say, well, what I can do is pay it forward to the kids I currently serve and the ones that come in the subsequent generations.
1: I love it because the you know it, it's it's so much really how the world works. We learn from our mistakes. We learn from what we did wrong. We whatever it is that we're doing, and even though in some cases it might be you know that uh, yes you, you know you don't have a redo if you're in the operating table, but you do actually because the next time you go around you're not going to do what you did that time, and you know we probably all experienced something like that where, um, you know uh, a favorite comment uh, from a doctor. Um, friend of the family was when uh, one of my grandmothers reached 96 and he told us, he said, he said, I just want you to know that she's now the oldest patient I've ever had. So some of what we're doing (laughs) is uh, experimenting.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah.
1: So interesting Uh, stuff. You
0: you don't want anybody to be incompetent as they provide a service for you. Uh, For example, you know, do you want somebody who designed one website in some high school class, (laughs) design your professional website or somebody who's done 36 or 50 websites and encountered lots of different problems and connective things, and oh, that's a really good aesthetic. Oh, you'll get a lot more participation on your site and visit your site if you do this. I want somebody who has that collected competence doing the very first website I ever want to have, you know, from my professional program. And that's the same thing. What is what is What does it mean to be competent in something? Not just, hey, I was a good echo or parrot of what my teacher. And I put it in a test, so now I've totally mastered it. You haven't even come close to mastering it, as you go forward. And so that it kind of feeds into what we know about ultimately what is mastery and what is learning.
1: I, I like that discussion, and we could go into that. That that's uh, you know because I think sometimes there's this misconception that uh, it you know I've reached the pinnacle. I'm at the pinnacle of teaching. I'm at this, yeah, yeah. and it's like whoa 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 back that truck up. I'm not sure there's a pinnacle ever
0: <laughs> yeah well dylan william has that wonderful quote and i'm not going to get it right but it's on youtube in many places and a lot of his writings but basically he's saying one lifetime of teaching is never enough to learn how to do it well you will never you know every single day you will do terrible bad things as a teacher <laughs> but it keeps it fresh and it keeps <laughs> it going because you'll never get good at it you know finally to this the ultimate point because it's impossible to do that So what you need to do is really say, I'm going to do as well as I possibly can with what I have right now, but I'm going to be in a continuous state of composition. And I'm going to welcome that as a revitalizing thing, not an oh no threatening thing. And I'm going to let that fuel my my great interest and commitment to doing right by my students. I just think it's a powerful sentiment.
1: Very much so. Awesome. Yeah. Let's shift gears to another book that you have. In your book, Rick, called Summarization in Any Subject: 60 Innovative Tech-Infused Strategies for Deeper Student Learning, second edition, this is noted. Summarization is one of the most underutilized teaching techniques we have today, and yet it yields some of the greatest leaps in comprehension and long-term retention of information. Could you talk a little bit about why teachers should learn to use summarization in their lessons?
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think summarization got a new boost in life with the very first, um, one of the very first books that put Rosano on the map, Classroom Instruction uh, That Works. And it was way back like 2000 or something like that. I mean, he had a couple of books ahead of that too, I know, Acquiring Vocabulary, uh, Vocabulary Acquisition books and some other things. But he listed it as one of the top nine things of all times for meta-analyses of what really works looking at effect size, the impact on students' learning. Summarization was huge, way up there. And John Hattie's you know, subsequent work and other people's work, yeah, it's continued along those lines. And then look at the work of a lot of cognitive scientists outside of the meta you know, pushers, so to speak, and you find other people supporting it as well. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say collectively, there is a lot of research on the power of summarization. But remember what summarization does. It's capturing gist. It's processing content. So a lot of times we get sense-making and that's where teachers stop. Uh, Here are the five protections in the First Amendment. Uh, Here's uh, something you should know about adverbs. Great. So if something is a really, um, a bunch of adverbs put together that weakens writing when you could replace it with a strong verb that actually is more active for the reader. I mean, whatever it might be that you're teaching, we can do sense-making. But the real I carried forward is meaning making. And meaning making is where you recode something that you're learning brand new in terms of something you already find familiar or you apply it or you process it for you, yourself personally. And summarization techniques are simply just blossoming with all those opportunities. So many cool ways you could t- capture, all right, the teacher did this and this is how what I'm taking away from it. Well, if you look at cognitive load theory, we can really only process like two or three items in our head at a time and really, really hold on to that and work with it. So the idea that I can distill essence to something that is workable and that would then yield something into long-term retention, huge. The other element to, or two other elements to summarization is one, they're accordion techniques, which means they can expand or collapse according to the needs of the class or the individual student or the subject. So you can get incredibly creative and you can infuse the technology as the subtitle of the book mentions that in that particular book, we've got uh, technological apps for every single summarization techniques, very traditional ones and brand new ones. Kids could set up their own Snapchat series of photos, for example, to summarize the dust bowl. That's one of the examples in the book, the dust bowl in Kansas in the, in the 1930s or whatever it is, and really incorporate a lot of cool stuff you can do the very basic three, two, one. Give me three of this uh, example, uh, three, way, three things you've learned, two ways it's analogous to a favorite sport, one word that best captures this, one question you still have, one thing you tell mom and dad, you know, whatever it happens to be, uh, you can do a three, two, one. You can use any of those in very creative ways, so it really helps you kind of add life to your lessons. And then what I love about it because of my other passion is that almost every single summarization technique is a form of assessment. So if you're sitting there going, there's only one way I could possibly assess the children in this. I'm not going to be creative. Dude, take a look at any book. I don't, it doesn't have to be mine. It can be anybody else's. And I co-wrote that book with Deidre Stafford. She's also an excellent resource in all of this. Um, here are 15 other ways you can assess that exact same thing. And they're a form of, of summarization to encapsulate which is a higher-order thinking skill. And when you're thinking of a higher-order thinking skill, you're thinking critically, we uh, are really thinking uh, divergently but also convergently at the same time, you really start moving that information and its subset parts into long-term memory. You can start able to work with it because you had these summarization techniques at your fingertips. So they can be used for exit slips, you know, a, a really tiny, finessed, assessment right there in the moment. They can use it for the big grand things. They can simply be used every 10 to 15 minutes while you're showing a video, and you're mindful of, it's not what I presented and got through, it's what the kids carried forward. So if you're about getting more of it in their heads for a long term, which frankly is the testimony for any living teacher, is what the kids learned, not what you presented. Nobody really cares what you present. It's what the kids learn after they're done with you. So make that your, your shining target. Uh, for in, in the distance, what you want to create, then you will get into the power of the summarization techniques. The re, one of the reasons I wrote that book is that so many teachers say summarize this in middle school and high school in particular, and they have no idea what they're really asking students to do. So we break it down into what summarization, the process of that is, and then we give all this myriad 60, which, and each one of the 60 has upside, uh, other ideas. So I would say there's 120 to 160 ideas in there of hey here are really creative ways you could do this thing stop wasting this missed opportunity and grab it and use it with your class and you're going to be vetted by all the researchers out there saying how powerful it is and watch your students really learn the stuff and remember it dare we even hope across the summer months
1: <laughs> most definitely i i love that i, I you know the, the power of it i mean just the idea of thinking about what it is that we're you know we're, we're we're trying to find out what they what they've gotten what they know where where they you know what did they get out of what we just did because if all they got out of it was did you ever notice that uh Maletto has like a little gap between his teeth you know or something like that you know we're <laughs> yeah. we're we're in trouble you know yes yeah <laughs> so awesome stuff so powerful yeah and i'm gonna use that to to go into another one of your your areas the uh, you know let's take a look at the role that metaphors and analogies play in instruction in your book metaphors and analogies power tools for teaching any subject you note little in education has as much influence on students academic and personal success as the metaphors and analogies teachers use to make unfamiliar concepts clear could you talk about why metaphors and analogies are important tools
0: I think metaphors and analogies are simply recognizing what is so naturally human. We are in ceaseless comparison. Everything we're doing, everything you're saying and that I'm saying is people are listening to it, they're comparing it. Well, that's just like, well, that's not like. We classify and categorize all the time. And one of the things that has served us so well is to create a target and it's analog. The relationship between these two things is similar to the relationship between those two other things. So now I understand those two other things much better because I recognize it is the same relationship as here. I'm fascinated with the idea, too, that our technology and our understanding of the way the world works has just geometrically escalated. In fact, beyond geometrically to some degree. For example, string theory has now been replaced by M theory. Uh, DNA used to be the double helix, but in some parts of the world, it's better described as a spider spinning its own web. And people are like, what the? But when you see it through that metaphor, you're suddenly going, oh, now I see that one mechanism, perhaps of evolution, that I didn't recognize before. So now I can recognize that and I can accept that into my schematic. Humans like an orderly sequence. I totally get that. We like a schematic. Things fit in. And we're always trying to make sense of the world and creating a, a, a metaphor for something or deconstructing the metaphor is one of the powerful ways we do that. And one of the things that, that I mentioned in the book is that the best metaphors are always false and that just stuns kids. Like, I don't want to hear any true metaphors. You will be run out of my classroom if you make a true metaphor. You better be false. It's one of the few things that you must be fake about it. What do you mean? You say, well, my dog is a canine. my, my car, it's an automobile. It's just like an automobile. Well, that's just a restatement of the same thing. (laughs) What you might say is, and I mentioned this in the book, my son's car is a sports locker on wheels, or my lawyer is a shark. Those things aren't literally true. They're fake. But now I see elements otherwise unperceived because you gave me that frame through which to see and perceive what was going on and suddenly the world the door blows off the hinges and i can understand president wilson's 14-point speech in 1918 and the way it created ripples across time and affects the way countries deliberate amongst each other today i can see what the impact of the marshall plan to rebuild europe was and how it affects maybe how we might work with another country, another part of the world in the modern era. And all these other things are happening at the same time. Like, oh my gosh, it's almost like poetry because I find poetry, really good poetry allows you to express things otherwise unexpressible. And when you get an aha connection and humans are ceaselessly seeking connection with subject, with humans and everything, the metaphor and analogy is that great tool to do that. They're like, I am all in. Kids who are hesitant, Frustrated, not buying into it. You ask them to create metaphors that were something about which they're passionate, and they compare, you know, Fortnite to this particular science thing or whatever to me. They're like, oh yeah, you need any more of those metaphors? I am so I've got them all for you, and they're all into the conversation. That's exactly what we want. But the idea is that we teach kids to construct their own metaphors and to question the metaphors that were handed down to them from the adults in the previous generation. How it doesn't hold up. Uh, and I love, I absolutely love doing this. I need you to express this thing that we're learning in three different domains. So for example, rotation and revolution, the scientific definitions of them, uh, revolving around external access, revolving or rotating around an internal access, so to speak. So I want you to find evidence or an analogy to rotation, revolution, each of those definitions in the world of fine art, okay? Now in the world of sports, now in the world of 18-wheelers on a highway. What? Those are, that's really weird, okay? In, in a fruit bowl or a bonsai tree. I don't know. It doesn't really care. In a microwave oven. Tell me. Show it. And the capacity to isolate critical attributes of one thing and compare it to the critical attributes of another is a way for you to learn it much, much more deeply and for a longer period of time. So the deconstruction of one, but also the construction of them, gold. Here's another example, and I totally got this from Amy Benjamin. She writes about differentiation, ESL, and writing. I highly recommend her books. Amy Benjamin, you'll thank me later. At any rate, she wrote about the fact that a lot of teachers describe feudal life, feudalism, in terms of rungs of a ladder. You have serfs, and you have vassals, and knights, and squires, and lords, and ladies of the manor, all that stuff. And those are different rungs of the societal ladder. But a ladder implies movement. You can go up and down the ladder. And you can't change your station in feudal life like that. It's not that easy unless there was a catastrophic event, like an earthquake or something. So she said a much better metaphor that really speaks to feudal strata in society is sedimentary rock, because it would require an earthquake to shift the different levels of sedentary rock, but it is there. It is rock solid unless there's a catastrophic thing happens. And I just love that. It's so powerful for the limitations of a metaphor than the power of deconstructing it where you understand and you think more critically about the subject itself. So I offer that. And the whole book is how metaphors are used in science and English and PE and music and coding, not just an English poetry unit, which is where they kind of you know they they send them. So i don't want to talk about that there. No, uh, in the 1950s and 60s, our computers started changing so much that we could no longer describe them with everyday physical objects. Well, you know, um, the the now we're describing the brain in terms of technology. Well, you know, we kept saying a calculator. It's it's like a brain, and now we're talking about parts of the brain like. I can't store that much knowledge. Memory storage, oh my gosh. Can you process this? Those are technology metaphors for describing human thought. So uh, we've advanced so much technologically, it is only through the power of metaphors that we can understand this very real thing. It's no longer this abstraction, it's a very real thing to us. But it's because we have versatility with metaphor construction that we're able to communicate that with one another. And I think that's the power that we're all about for connection and communication, but we have to develop those skills to do it. Hence the book that you just described. Does that help? Does that make sense?
1: Oh my gosh. Yes, it does. And it was hard to keep my mouth shut. So this is, this is Im- incredibly powerful. And I, I love this. Well, it's, it's also
0: powerful for you, like in leadership positions, leaders really get people to come together because they've chosen strategic metaphors to really communicate what they're about. Go ahead.
1: Oh, I love it! I I love it. This is so powerful on so many different levels, and and just uh, I- incredible. And I, I appreciate you uh, um, getting into it and and explaining it that way. This is thank you. I you know, it, and I what I hate is I could I could right now I've got this whole focus on hmm. I th- I think I could spend a little bit more time here, but I'm going to take you into it even more. It it. it a difficult subject for many, I guess, is what is probably the best way to say this next topic. Because one of the things that, uh, that you write about and talk about is probably one of the most controversial, at least in the world of educators in the classroom, as we know it, amongst ourselves. <laughs> uh, it becomes controversial outside the classroom for many reasons, which people can, you know, can, uh, uh, can understand once I say what I'm talking about. And, and this is the topic of grading. You know, in, in fair isn't equal. You talk about differentiated grading. Can you talk about what this is and why should teachers and administrators understand the concept?
0: Well, you really have two things in that statement. One is grading and then one is differentiation. And what I want to, the, the point I guess I make when I say differentiated grading is that when you differentiate it, it, when you try to grade properly, it doesn't exclude differentiated thought. In other words, you can really be very powerful as a grader as you do that. So it gets to some of the things we've sort of bounced around and alluded to already, in that if you need a different timeline, I'm gonna give you that timeline. And you get an A two weeks later after the first rest of the class got their A's. They already moved on the curriculum. You moved on the curriculum, but you needed more time in the previous curriculum as well, so you're doing dual curricula for two weeks. But eventually you get that A. Well, that extended timeline A is just as legitimate as the earlier you got in the same timeline A. Some kids are better at playing the game of school than other kids. And in some units of study, the kid who's really, really rock solid, he might struggle a little bit and needs a little extra support. Maybe uh, a technology assistance, a different pathway to come to the same understanding. That has nothing to do with the grade. But a lot of teachers incorporate into a grade the, the procedures and methods they were using to teach the child. And a grade doesn't report that. A grade reports what you know, what evidence you could present of proficiency as of one arbitrary calendar date. And given subsequent evidence after the fact, it can change. So grades are temporary at best as they move through it because you've got the entire year to teach. And in some places, multiple years, if you had those portfolios that we mentioned earlier. So the idea is that I, I want to promote accuracy and integrity of the grade. The grade means what it says. So what we want to do is we want to remove anything that would make the waters murky, that would pollute the report, and we want to do the stuff that makes them transparent. And it turns out there's a whole bunch of things that teachers do that knowingly falsify the report, that conflate the report of a kid's proficiency of one thing with the report of something else. So, for example, I have you know, looked at the math standards. I've done other subjects. Let's just stick with math right now. I've looked at the math standards for every single state in the United States, K-12. I've read every single one of them. as a part of a graduate th- program I was doing. And none of them, not one state says has a nice neat math notebook. So that's a technique a teacher would use to get a student to learn the math. And it's very helpful to a lot of kids, but not all of them. And you uniformly saying you have to do a math book, that's about compliance. So my grades report learning, not doing, not compliance so are you giving students grades because they did the project they did the writing they did the homework you know stop it because that's not literally what they know about adding fractions with different denominators that's what the grade is supposed to report so i report work habits anything that's a teacher technique separately and i advise all teachers to do that and suddenly the grades are far more accurate so the question is do you want integrity what's really bizarre is that Uh, So many high school and middle school teachers in particular say their grades are accurate. But multiple teachers teaching the same thing in the same building, let's say there's four or five teaching life science or English at this grade level. Well, one student, one class learns this amount of learning about a topic, and that's an A or a 4.0. But another teacher in the same building, that amount of learning, that's only a B or a C or a 3 or a 2. And yet they have the nerve to tell parents, yeah, you can trust the grades. We're accurate. One or more of you is wrong. So the idea is, do you value consistency with one another? If you do, you will calibrate and vet evidence with each other. What is proficient? What's almost what's developing, what's emergent. So we're about accurate communication at every turn, not rewarding, not compensation, not validation. Validation will come because they're now able to have the the freedoms, the rights, the privileges of the achieved granted to them, but they're not encumbered by still learning the material. But, they're, or they're denied that because they didn't do the learning. Affirmation validation come afterwards, but the grade itself can't be considered a reward or an affirmation or a validation. If you work hard, you'll get an A. That's not what we're about. So when you talk about differentiation and grading, you're talking about are we removing any of the barriers for from a child's learning so he can get the same, or she or they can get the same opportunities to achieve, to learn all that material. It might be a different timeline, different pathway, but by golly, the grade is the same. And then can we disaggregate this? Because the more you aggregate into one symbol, the less valid and useful it is. And when you disaggregate, this goes back to assessment, you reveal where the student is much more helpfully. So the assessment becomes revelatory. Reveal story, revelatory. There's your little mnemonic for the day. And so, is your assessment revelatory? It reveals the student's story because you disaggregated. You wrote the standards at the top, and they're high in this, medium in that, medium in that, low, low, high, whatever it is. And now I know how to inform next steps in instruction. But if I just say, ancient Rome, 92, that means nothing. Uh, um, Algebra, you got a 76. Oh, what the? I can't use that to inform anything. So let's curriculum per symbol. That means that tests would have the standards written in all of them. So would quizzes. And when you disaggregate, I can now respond. So there's a a mixing of differentiation ideals and of the grading ideals when you use the term differentiated grading. But the idea ultimately is that it creates an accurate report and you're very conscientious of equity issues and you remove any barriers. Seeing every kid is infinitely teachable, infinitely valuable. Does that help?
1: Oh, very much so. Very much so. I love it. They you know, it's it, it's a topic that I I I think we have to have with each other as colleagues. in Yeah. In, yeah. in talking, and we have to go to that route because uh, so much is, uh, um, you know, it ends up with like you said, um, Roman Empire ninety two. You know. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's not very meaningful.
1: No, not at all. And it, or an X, and you know, an X right. is excellent happy face those are meaningful um well and- we
0: also get into really weird policies like sports eligibilities issues special ed you know right and left uh whether somebody um presents evidence artistically but it's the same evidence as opposed to presenting evidence in the more traditional test format is that still legitimate evidence there are a thousand different directions and ethical things and i think you respond on by saying we have to talk to each other about this. That's the way we held ourselves accountable, but it just forces that introspection yourself on what's going on. And a lot of things in grading, teachers hide behind what was done to me, so I'm gonna do it to them. And it was good enough for me, but a whole bunch of kids, it wasn't good enough and it ruined it. And we have actually evolved as a profession. We are better now. And in fact, you know, there's a connection there. Look at any profession, police, nurse, technology uh, accounting, it doesn't matter. real estate agent. Would you ask, would you look at them and say, "Gosh, I wish you were doing what you were doing 20 years ago in the field?" because uh, they've all improved, they've all evolved. They're very different. But education is one that seems to still be hearkening back the way it was when we were kids. Uh, that some, for some of us, that's why I went in education and we're not embracing the idea that our classrooms should look dramatically different than the classrooms of 20 years ago let alone maybe even 10 years ago. But a lot of people say, no, you will do what was done to me as childhood because that's what I understand. And I don't want to have to learn this new way of thinking.
1: Which is just very scary. Cause it's it like, is, it you, is, know, it is. you know, it's uh, yeah. I was in my Aldro. Uh, outro- one class, never forget it. The uh, gentleman was very nice. He was a teacher. And uh, um, one of the things that you learned was that if you didn't want to do work for the day, you asked him about uh, um, how his Friday night football game went because he was a ref. All right. And uh, if it was in basketball season, you asked him about refing basketball. And you were done. <laughs> now, the unfortunate thing is, is it did not impact your uh, ability to do well in the next level of math. Yes, exactly. And, and especially in college. And, you know, and, and it's not so much that as what's sad is that you know there there has to be an aspect of us saying to ourselves is what i'm doing um you know what what would i get because just as a side note what that gentleman would do to make up for time then was he'd give us a bunch of things that would get grades in the book then all right because yeah, yeah. he got behind <laughs> yeah. and you're like okay hopefully i do well on this one and this one and this one and this one you know, suddenly you start paying and uh, for uh, those uh, those moments when you learned about friday night and
0: yeah and there's there's in that, um, you, you made me think of something, given that example, there are some teachers that really operate from deservedness. You know, he deserves this, he worked hard, he deserves that, he, worked, he didn't work at all, he deserves this, or he was, he was back talking me, so he deserves this low grade, or whatever it was. And that's unethical, because you're knowingly lying, and none of us have any moral authority to lie, to distort the truth to our students. And your misunderstanding, how do I teach you to behave properly, is very different than what do you know about you know, the parts of a plant or whatever it is we're teaching. And I have to separate those out if we're going to grow and, and be honest here. I, I can't knowingly be dishonest with kids. And so a lot of times teachers let that emotional baggage of deservedness kind of override their rational thought about grades. And that can be very dangerous as well. And whole lives are at stake based on one dumb percentage point, which is actually statistically within the margin of error. So the idea of a 100-point scale goes out the window if you accept the fact that you want to be ethical. Yet we still have the 100-point scale because parents understand it, a lot of teachers understand it, and they feel like it's objective when really it's incredibly subjective and harmful. It was never meant to be used to report performance against standards and learner outcomes to teachers in a meaningful way. It was meant to sort children and create a mathematical pretend objectivity, but we have to stop worshipping worshipping at that math altar to find grading credibility. And I'm a you know a proud member of NCTM, and I'm saying those words.
1: That- <laughs> By the way, that's a funny uh, that that has its own funniness in it. As uh, for those that are listening, making sure that you you know if you do recognize those initials having to do with the uh, National Council of Teaching Mathematics, right? Yes, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> so um, yes, and that you know that it, it, it's something there because that you know the whole idea that uh, there's a little bitty distance at the top, but there's this huge thing at the bottom that you have to oh, overcome yeah, of course. if you get down it. If you get if you start drudging around down in those fifties and forties and oh below that. We got a long way to go to get back out of that. that
0: right, and bass. that gets to the improper use of central tendency, uh, averaging. You look at mode instead of mean, uh, median to some degree for a recent report two year and a half ago found college grades, the, media, the median of them, which is the middle one out of a range, actually correlated much more significantly with post-college work performance than did the college average of your grades. And then mode, we found, is much more indicative, which is the most prevalent, consistent evidence over time, and found that much more uh, correlating with outside-the-school testing than did mean. So if you really want to say, yes, you've learned this amount, and anybody testing you would find the exact same thing I just declared, then you would use mode. You would not use mean. But a lot of teachers like, and parents are like, no, don't take it away. I don't understand it. So the larger question then becomes, pulling the camera lens back again, to what degree do we allow people who are untrained in this to set policy to tell us what to do? And that becomes uncomfortable, but that's a better question that we inform those around us and we do what is right because we are the professionals who understand what we're doing. So let's do right by the kids and do that rather than sacrifice whole futures and careers because we had to hide behind an antiquated, inappropriate, harmful grading system.
1: It's so powerful, so powerful. Um so- Rick, this is this has been incredible today. Um, being able to catch up with you and and have you talk a little bit about all this this just powerful stuff for making us better in the classroom and and uh, helping kids uh, achieve their dreams and so forth with uh, focusing on their future. Uh, before we go, if someone wanted to connect further with you, where would you send them?
0: I would send them to one of three places. On Twitter, it's at Rick Warmly Two, not the one at Rick Warmly uh, that was hacked a number of years ago. It's still out there, but I, for the last five years and continuing on, you have to add a two to the end of it and you'll get the real me. Second, rickwarmly.com. And there are multiple tabs there of articles, multimedia, and ways that you can send me an email. And then the actual email is rick at rickwarmly.onmicrosoft.com. So you have to spell warmly correctly there uh, on the Rick Warmly part. That's W-O-R-M-E-L-I.
1: Awesome. And I'll have that in my show notes as well as the, the links to your social media and, and your website and all of that. So as well as your uh, your email. So I can't thank you enough for talking with me today. This has been incredible. I mean, this is, uh, at, and you know, going way back to those days when, uh, like I tell you, I'm not kidding. I remember that day forever because of what my attitude was going in and what my attitude was leaving, which was just on another planet. And I was focused and ready to take on the yeah. world. And it was all because you put me in that planet and I appreciate it. Um, I got. I got two last things I'd like to ask you if I could. And one of them goes like this, when life gets tough and you start getting so much stuff thrown at you that you may want to quit, how do you keep going?
0: You know, I have a really fun cousin and his name is Jim Meister. And I call him Jimmy. And he happened to be staying at our house one time when I was overwhelmed with everything in the classroom and what was coming out of the pike. And I knew it wasn't going to meet deadlines. And then I also had family commitments, and he turned to me and he said, "Well Rick, just give up. that's all you do just give up, that's all you do." And I just thought, you know sometimes we can do that you know just give up and step away as you do that. but for me, getting outdoors changes perspective to so changing context. So I will go do that that bike ride. I will go do the, the walk, I will go just play with the dogs. Um, I will go do something else. And I come back refreshed, and of course, exercise releases endorphins and dopamine and all kinds of things, and gets oxygen to the brain. And I'm really mindful of letting the subconscious rise up to the conscious. So you take that the shower or that long car drive, and you suddenly things that were in the percolating in the back of your mind rise up, and you get really good renewed you know ideas. The other thing to th- that I do realize is that every time that I'm at a loss and really kind of despondent, when I am charitable to others and I go out of my way to help somebody else, so like I am overwhelmed with stuff, but somebody else is needy and I go work with them, I return to my own mess with a different perspective and more energy for it, for having chosen to serve others. You know, I find meaning and all that, that's very valuable to me. And so if i'm finding myself spinning out of control i need to go do something where i'm physically supportive and helpful of another i'm coming back to my own woes uh much more uh capable than i was prior emotionally and perhaps even mentally uh, capable to take them on i also realized that if i have to lower my expectations and take smaller chunks rather than trying to do it all and so I, I, I'm immature sometimes, like when I write books, I write the parts that are easiest for me because it helps build momentum. I'm really excited about writing that. And then I go, oh no, I gotta write this chapter, this one section, I'm really not, I'm loathing that, I'm delaying on it, but I finally get into it and I realize this is way more fun than I thought. But I needed the success of the smaller chunks to get me to do the harder ones and then the connections between them and it starts flowing and I'm okay again. I'm at an even keel. And then finally, I just have to admit, sleep, baby sleep is restorative. If you all can do that, you can come back, kinda you were submerged, but now you 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 rise up and you have this wellspring from which you can draw to to kind of answer the, the issues that were aching so badly yesterday that don't seem so so large today.
1: Awesome, thank you. Rick, thank you so much for talking with me today. From your books like Fair Isn't Always Equal, Assessment and Grading in a Differentiated Classroom, uh, Metaphors and Analogies, Power Tools for Teaching Any Subject, Summarization in Any Subject, 60 Innovative Tech-Confused Strategies for Deeper Student Learning, uh, to all of your articles and presentation, and you're an inspiration to all educators. Uh, you have an incredible treasure chest of helpful strategies, techniques, and tools for all teachers and building administrators to learn how to help their students be successful in school. Thank you so much and uh, wishing you the best in all that you do. Thank you, Steve, for your leadership. I hope people realize the treasure they have in you. It certainly
0: would be an honor to work in the building with you. So good fortunes in the the year ahead and stay as healthy as you possibly can.
1: Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcast for educators, podcast by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K12 are those of the guests and host. Teaching Learning Leading K12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.